makes a man? What makes a man? What makes a man? What makes a man? What is a man? Who is a man? Why is a man? Is it all just drag? You know who to ask. It's the Drag King cast. Hello and welcome back to the Drag King cast. How you doing? My name's John Travolver. Hey, my name is Luce Willis. <sighs> Another day inside, buddy. Yeah, it's been a long one, hasn't it? How's your, uh, not to get too deep too quick, but oh, how's, your, how's your self-confidence going, my man? I just know oh, that we're, wow. both, we're both guys with great hair and I'm feeling a wee bit disheveled. Oh moment. yeah. I mean, my hair is a lot of my thing. I mean, I mean, I'm a Leo, obviously my main, um, I don't know. I think it's good having low self-confidence to start with. Usually when I'm in pecs, I'm surrounded by handsome men all the time. So I'm very used to being the kind of baseline of uh, handsomeness and talent in the show, you know, the meat and potatoes of the group, as I like to say, uh, horse meat in my case, you know, in, in that if I show up in something, I'm not exactly bad for you. You just rather know I was there so you can make an informed decision. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm i fine. I, I just think it's like if Pex were a boy band, mm-hmm. I always say I would be considered the tall one or the uh, unnerving one. <laughs> the the Babadook of the group, if you will. So confidence at a, at a plain... Uh, tall hatted spooky ghoul like level how about you john how's your self-confidence doing well you know it's 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 all right i just i've usually got this sort of gorgeous you know bleach blonde oh, barnet going on on top of my head and snow you know i'm quite a simplistic guy in general you know i'm not really into my looks but i quite like to look after the hair i mm. think it's good for me it's good for the world it's a nice thing for everyone to look at i feel better know? when i see it Thank you. But yeah, I mean, I haven't been able to go get a haircut, so it's just getting a wee bit, I won't, I, you know, I, you've got a gorgeous mullet. Me, I'm, I'm out of my mullet face. It's getting a wee bit mullety and I, I'm not quite with it. You know, I've, I know that a lot of people have given each other haircuts in lockdown, but that's, I don't know if our audience will know this, but that's quite an important part of queer sort of love ritual where if you cut each other's hair, you know, you shave one person you shave the other person, you gather all of the hair together and you make it into a baby shape and you take it to the head of queers, Sandy Togsvig, and she bakes it in the bake-off oven, which she still has access to. And um, that's how gabies are born. And I'm not ready for that yet. You know, I'm not there in my relationship, especially no. not during a pandemic. I just don't want that, you know. So I've, I've, I've got to go to the hairdressers got to do it and it's just always a wee bit stressful but it's still worth it in the end did I tell you about the last time I went to the hairdressers I don't think so yeah you haven't told me any of this before it was a wee bit trom if I'm honest to you like my local barbers is called man cave right right I've got one of those yeah it's a classic you know like you look in the window and you're like this is a man's place like it's got a big taxi dummy moose head and it's got like jack daniels bottles at the front right right? and my barber nick he is sound as fuck i'm a big fan of him he's a great feminist we really get on we like to talk about important feminist stuff with feminist pros right Mm. yeah last time i was in there he was telling me about his beard he's having a hard time because some of his less enlightened friends were mocking him because his beard like if he doesn't blow dry it it goes curly (laughs) 
Sorry, it's not funny. How dare you? Call Sorry. me Nick. This is exactly the kind anyway. And then he, if he doesn't blow dry it, like it's curly. And then if he blows dries it, they're mean to him because he's blow drying and that's girly. You know, it's like a lose-lose situation for him. Right? Mm, yeah. So he's having a rough one with talking about that. And then this other guy picks up on the fact that we're feminists, right? Not just because I've got it tattooed on me. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we're chatting it. about important feminist stuff. And he was like, you know what? I bet that you would even blame the fact that there are men and women on men because you're fucking feminists and like i turned around to him right and i engaged my brain and you know how clever i am oh my god you want to stand out of the firing line of that buddy exactly well the thing is like i'll i don't try to mansplain but sometimes you've got just got to yeah 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 and like i just stood up and i was like well if you think about it like actually when you're making a wee baby there's all these chromosomes going on and, uh, you know, I didn't go into intersex people because I didn't think he was ready for that. No, like, no, no. Some fetuses have an X and a Y chromosome. Mm. Some fetuses have an X and an X chromosome. And uh, actually, the Y chromosome is carried by sperm. So actually, it is cis men's fault that there are men and women. And he just, like, exploded into, like, all of this dust and it settled onto the floor of the hairdressers. And I gathered it all up with the hair and I made it into a baby shape. And I took it to Sandy Toxvig and she put it in the bake-off oven and that's how No Fielding was born. Oh, my God. I know, but it was really emotionally heavy. Like, I'm not ready to do that again for a while. Hello, my name is Katie. I am a drag king called Luce Willis. Hello, my name is Jodie and I am a drag king called John Travolver. Oh, the last time we're going to be saying that. I know. Forever. Our little... <laughs> you panic our fans. Oh, sorry. No, no, I'm sorry. Um, oh, Mum, don't worry. <laughs> you can still hear my voice. My no, we're going to take a little, a little season break. We have a little, a little break. We've been churning them out, man. Like, yeah, we'll still be accessible via the Patreon. We're going to keep that baby loaded up. So if you start missing us over, I don't know, maybe the next couple of months while we're recording for season two, there's plenty of juicy content on the Patreon. You know, we, we always said that we wouldn't talk about RuPaul's Drag Race on the safe space that is the Drag King cast, but I think we might on the Patreon. Yeah, so. I think, yeah, that's the extra juicy content <laughs> that's going to go on there. And I think there might just be a lot of fun stuff on the Patreon, which is usually the chat that me and Jodie have before the interviews, which is usually, if you don't want to hear us talking about gender and playing uh, masculine roles, but you do want to hear us talking about Stardew Valley and my love of Lord of the Rings, <laughs> then the Patreon is the destination for you. It's the place to go. It's definitely the place. I don't it's love the it place that for much. everything. Do I? I there's think. a little spattering of like, you know, less stodgy based content as well. I think maybe yes. we could put that rant about JK Rowling that we had to cut out because it was too traumatic. That would, yeah, I mean, I say I think rant is a is a hot like not a harsh word I feel like it was a very deep sad conversation <laughs> yeah. about you being a trans person and how and a Harry Potter fan um I know that, rip my childhood yeah but no the Patreon is the Patreon is going to be very good so you can always catch more stuff over there 
Yeah. I want to say, how are you feeling about taking a little break? Because this has been gorgeous doing this with you. It's been really lovely. And it's something we've talked about doing for such a long time, but actually doing it and particularly talking to all of our like friends and queer peers and drag kings and things, even if it's via Zoom over the last few months. And that includes you and the rest of PEX and our drag family, but it's just having that relationship with people and being able to just talk about all the weird and wonderful things with them. It, it gives you that community spirit. Like it give you, gives you that feeling when you go to the bar and you watch an amazing drag show and you're just talking the shit for ages afterwards with whoever's there. It's kind of been my way of getting that but with not having gigs any, anymore which has yeah. been really nice it's been so good to be able to feel connected to the community it's true yeah it's also really nice talking to all these people who are such like dynamic um incredible performers and yourself included and then also just talking to them about their drag characters and the drag personas and basically everyone is very like humble and shy <laughs> when <laughs> everyone goes on stage and it's like bam here I am I'm ready to rock and then you talk to them like oh yes well I'm very nervous outside of drag it's the cutest thing yeah. I feel like I see a lot of that in myself as well um but it's very nice you are an adorable queer as, <laughs> as is everyone that's come on this season oh, thank it's just you been to so our lovely fun. guests yeah I'm so excited for season two I know because I think there might be more than eight drag kings and things out there <laughs> we definitely do you think so do you maybe <laughs> well there's yeah god god knows I mean I haven't seen them on drag race but they might there might be a few more than the ones we found it's like the tree in the forest it's like <laughs> if if a drag act hasn't been on RuPaul's drag race does, does it exist, exist? <laughs> <laughs> oh I think also this has just been so lush to have like a set reason to just come and chat about drag shit with you because obviously we are drag family we are brothers forever yes and pex is like such a massive part of both of our lives so it's been it's been good to also have the the thing to keep us doing something with the drag family yeah during the pandemic when we can't be performing well i do have one other question for you okay which is kind of on the same theme okay which is obviously we we met four years ago something like that yeah, probably and then we started working together I'd already seen you make work um and then I joined PEX and then we started making work together and I think the way that we make drag is quite different in that it's super collaborative and I think that's maybe not that mm. obvious from the outside that we make everything um with the intent of it being a collaborative process so people might come in with set ideas of work that they want to make but we watch that work all together and we all give feedback on that work and we also yeah. have an incredibly talented director Celine Lowenthal who works with us throughout that process and holds space for it love you Celine um and so I wanted to ask you what how you find the experience of collaborative work like whether you think there's a really stark difference between like the way that we work with impacts and when you've like been your drag king outside of pecs yeah absolutely I think I'm as good as I am now however good that is is because from allowing myself to open up and 
to work more with people. I think through so much of my life and early years of writing, doing comedy, I would close myself off and be like, I am going to work by myself because I know what I should be doing. And this is the idea that I've had. And if I give it to other people, or if I share it with other people, it will only be ruined or it will only be changed to be something that I don't want it to be. Mm. And I think coming into a situation where it is so open and working with other people, you have to, it's always good to have those initial instincts because I think it's what gives you the drive to be able to create original work, but you only ever get better if you allow other people to give you feedback and to develop it with you which I feel like I have improved so much in, and I still struggle with it sometimes like you know <laughs> you've worked with me before of being able to let go or to like open up an idea more but hearing other people's voices and other people's feedback on things it just sometimes people can think of something with an idea that you've never in a million years thought of and you think you've thought about every element of what this act is going to be and you can be talking to a group of other people and someone will just say oh have you thought about doing x and you're like oh my god that's genius like why didn't I why didn't I think of that but it's only something that comes from being with people you trust obviously and you trust their feedback you wouldn't just do it with anyone but um I've only got better what do you think how do you how is it how has it helped or, or hindered hindered how has my input hindered you it's it's just been incredible because I had the same thing of really fearing feedback um mm. and fearing working with other people and fearing uh the way other people can like influence your personal work and I, yeah. I think doing improv comedy um helped me to overcome that a bit because it taught me how to like take charge of a scene if I felt as though it was going in a dangerous direction it taught me to take charge um, which isn't something that you should go into like any improvised work with you should never go in with the intent of I have to be in charge of this um, nor did I always feel like that but the that few times spending that, yeah. 20 minutes setting up a scene just to have someone piss all over it within like two minutes it's like no I had all these ideas of where this was gonna go and now they're gone yeah but then it's also like you need to be able to be fluid but it's more it's more like the the few times that you know a scene should be able to develop and then someone comes in and the, the point of the scene becomes that like they have a giant penis and it's like oh great another scene about a giant penis i'm so pleased to be here Surely um, that's my entire act i don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> Just... but more, most importantly it's your entire solo act <laughs> and it's been carefully crafted this had not you know um so I think that those experiences taught me that I um could advocate for myself where Mm. I where I needed to Mm. and help to um make me more open to working with other people but the reason I was so scared of it was because when I was doing stand-up um I was just always completely bulldozed by like whatever men were on that night and the, the feedback that they would give um, and it would always be uh, very basic and very frustrating and very like not not negative like I wasn't just being like given negative feedback by people but I wasn't um, they weren't giving feedback that like took into account the fact that maybe I was trying to do something that they would never try to do so I would would just get told a lot to make it like more accessible to men basically um and so I got very used to just 
like taking on board what made sense to take on board because everyone needs to learn especially with stand-up yeah but having to discern what was being said only because I wasn't a cis man and I was doing comedy um and so it was amazing to come into a space where no one was a cis man and yeah. to suddenly realize that like every single bit of feedback I got even the stuff that was really hard to hear or that mm. required really big changes which I which we all get a lot of yeah um was stuff I wanted to hear because I wanted to improve the act and everyone shared like the same um the same respect and like intent yes and that's what's hard like when people don't have the same intent as you and they're it's making right, work yeah. but they're not the right person to give you feedback spending ages writing a routine about xyz and something someone's like that's not funny and you're like but you don't you don't know what i'm talking about you haven't had this experience so i guess i don't really trust what you're saying about it whereas if i if i'm performing my routine about xyz to five other people who've also experienced that then they can be like, oh, I like this bit about it, but I, because I would think this about it. Yeah, it's, it, you can't take feedback serious. <laughs> I mean, you can for some, with a pinch of salt, but you, from people who haven't had the same experiences as you, yeah. if it's about a thing you're talking about. But well, it's yeah. like, if those people have feedback that's about how to make what you're talking about more accessible to different mm. people, that's always valid. Yeah. Like, I'm not saying Absolutely. Like, you should never listen to people that don't have exactly the same life experiences as you, nor, nor are you. But I think like, there's a difference between someone giving you feedback on how to make something accessible and someone giving you feedback that n negates the legitimacy of what you were saying in the first place. And a lot of the feedback I used to get was that it would be people being like why are you doing stand up about periods yeah you know and that's not that's not useful i'm not going to stop doing it <laughs> but then i i feel like um like on the topic of intent like when we go into uh when we start planning for a show mm. i feel like everyone arrives with uh content that definitely isn't to do with like shared lived experiences like everyone mm. in Pex has wildly different lived experiences yes um and so when we give feedback on that stuff it's never from a place of oh I completely I completely get what this is about yeah um but because we all want the show to have the same intent which is like let's shine a light on masculinity and what it's like when masculinity isn't owned by cis men and uh, what a utopian world would be like and also what our current world is like and let's make let's make work from our personal experiences that can do all of that stuff yeah it means that the feedback is always useful always practical and always safe to hear because none yeah. of it none of it is ever to do with like devaluing that experience um like when when we were doing the 80s show I remember you when you were planning your stand-up routine for that. Mm, that's right. Yeah, really yeah. specific ideas for what you wanted to do. Well, maybe you should talk about that. But that that always stands out to me as an example. Yeah, I think that was one of the first times that, um, because you know, I I do like silly humor and I do like I make a lot of flippant comments about dick jokes and everything on the podcast. But I think the eighty show, the second iteration at Soho Theatre, that was kind of just when. Uh, the Me Too movement um, was kicking off uh, content warning for anyone who doesn't want to hear about that because it's horrible. Um, but it was a time where I felt 
I don't just want to keep doing silly humor that doesn't have something to say in it. Like I want to have this experience of uh, talking about something that is so painful and upsetting to me and I want to talk about it and it's important for me to talk about it like I can't just come out and be like hey everyone I'm a boy what's up with that anymore like I can't just do that anymore but it's also being able to and we talk about it a little bit in the Trinidad episode but being able to do that in a way that you are not going to bring everybody in the room pain and upset by bringing it up on stage it's it's about having that relationship with the audience as well and knowing that if you're coming from a place if you want to protect them and you want to safeguard them and you let them know from the beginning like you can leave if this is any uncomfortable to you it's having that that freedom but it's also just that they know that you have thought about them and you're being careful yeah you have like a testing ground of doing that with um everyone in a group of lovely people beforehand so hopefully it doesn't it doesn't happen I love you so much. <laughs> I, it, it, but it is that thing of, ha- of um, space holding, having that place to hold space before you get in front of an audience is so important and makes makes work so much better. Totally. And it's so, sometimes that's just fulfilled by like your drag family in and of mm. itself because also like cabaret performers we're very lucky to be able to work with a director the thing, um, I think so much the time I think so many things you don't get feedback for it's like when would you get if I just wanted to start going to open mics and even for things like stand-up like it's so even if you're getting feedback that's not <laughs> helpful at all sometimes you just get no feedback and particularly mm. with cabaret and burlesque things if you're if you don't have a drag family or you don't have a group of peers and you don't really know anyone, all you're doing is going to open mics and trying what you think is good, which probably is good, but it, to have someone view it and tell you how it can be better is such a rare and valuable thing. Totally. And a, and a safety thing in and of itself, because like, I don't, I, I think family is so tied up in ballroom culture Mm. there's there's like a thousand and one things that we could say about it but yes in terms of when you're um prepping to do an act I think for us as um a community of drag kings and things where there are very few cis men um we've been told not to take up space and it's very difficult to make like groundbreaking art Mm. and then just go and put it on stage um without being able to uh have like any kind of feedback or affirmation around it and there are so many incredible talented um kings and things that do do that yeah Um, and I am in awe of them absolute awe of them because I don't think I could um I don't think that like when we were doing sex sex and men and I wanted to do like my my big my big speech on phallocentrism and I wanted Mm. to get a blowjob at the same time I really don't think I would have done that if I was just gonna go and like do it for the first time in like the basement of do you know what I mean yeah because I could sit and have I I had my like hand held throughout that um and I was safe throughout it there's also just like the initial energy that you need and the self-confidence that you need to develop something, which I, I think is a massive barrier for our community. Yes. Because yep. we've been like told that we're not legitimate so many times, which yeah. family and having a director really helps with. 
there's also and just sometimes it's like where do I start with things it's like you can sometimes with an idea you have it like finding the idea of an act to do it's always like sometimes it might be a song or something like really grabs you or like a visual you're like oh, I want to do that like I want to do that and then you're just like well, what do I do like how do I make that into an act like how would I even begin to put that on stage or what even is the act I'm just inspired by this one thing I have no idea what it is and be able to have someone you can go to and say does this mean anything to you like I feel like this could be good but I don't know uh what or wow and someone say well why don't you look at it from this way or you could do this with it that's where it all kind of starts rolling from and eventually you're rolling around in a bag of rubbish drinking gone off milk on stage you know (laughs) which is gorgeous well like when um when we were doing because that you were talking about when we did um xxxmas and yeah you did your phenomenal Grinch act and it was incredible (laughs) and then also like I remember having the planning meeting for that and Thrustin turned up with the idea of I really want to talk about like shamey diet culture yes around Christmas yes we would be remiss if we didn't target it in some way and it turned into a splotting act yeah it was like someone saying why don't you contrast the adverts from pre-Christmas with the adverts like post-Christmas with the January started versus the eat as much as you can thing if someone someone threw that idea out I think it was me but I could be wrong there's a lot of voices (laughs) in the room and then that went from there into well why don't you do this and then it became that until then and it's all it's all Lauren's energy and it's all Lauren's idea and Lauren's spirit and Lauren's heart and it all comes from her but there are so many other people adding these little nuggets and things on top that makes it what it is until you end up with Christmas dad <laughs> coming on with his little oven mitts doing a strip and then wanking bring, himself off with a mince pie cream that is bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh the beautiful places that drag can go I think one of the things that I treasure the most about having a drag family um, and that being our collaborative way of working. And I keep differentiating between drag family and director and our our director is also our drag family. Yeah. (laughs) Mother. Um, I, I think one of the things I treasure most about it is just that like the principles of uh, consent are so clearly tied into the way that we perform yes. and the way that we create and if you don't want to make something you can say no to it and I, I think one of the things that made me scared about like other collaborative work before is that there wasn't there wasn't really the space to say no mm. and when you're trying to like build a career in the arts you're supposed to say yes to everything that you can um, yes. and that is that is a really difficult thing to navigate when you're also trying to make art that's like something that you actually want to make something that's true to yourself something that you want to be tied to you something that you can feel proud of something that's also commercially viable like Mm. it's very difficult and something and also like you have to make money as well and so you know it's Uh. really it's a really difficult thing to navigate um and I am just so grateful uh, and feel so lucky to have found a drag family where um, the entire point is to make work that we're proud of and that we want to make, that we actively want to make. I think it's a it's a much rarer thing than you'd think. 
but I think I agree with you. I think my previous, I think that's why I was, I've, I think that's why I felt a bit more hesitant about collaborating to start with is because it's usually you are brought into a group because you have a role to fill. So it's like, okay, we're looking for a tall blonde girl. So that's what you, that's what we've hired you for. We've got a bunch of things we want you to do with that character. And that's what you do. And that's why, you know, we've already got this member, we've got that member. So we need someone to fill this gap. But it's actually working in true collaboration is being able to do something entirely new because you have the support of other people. You have the risk. You know, like, you know, maybe today I don't want to be the tall blonde girl. Maybe today I want to be like this. Maybe, maybe we should all work on that. It's like you're not being brought in just because you have one thing that you can do. It's people see the value of you and what you can bring and what you can offer them and they can offer you. And it's truly, truly working together rather than just getting dumped in one category and that's what you do until you're too old and they get a new long girl <laughs> too old or too bitter blonde, blonde girl trauma into the space I think <laughs> so true though so true well I am endlessly grateful that you are my drag family I my sweet, love sweet you I feel like every one of our chats in our pre-chat interviews is ended with you saying I love you and me going I love you too but I only speak the truth and yeah it has been lovely doing this with you and I look forward to doing much more with you and to keep talking with our extended drag family and to keep talking about fucking drag because it's cool to talk about it I actually think that the show that we were just talking about XXXmas is where I met our guest for this week's episode for the first time. Oh, wonderful, wonderful guest, Ziggy Moonlight. Ziggy Moonlight is phenomenal. Um, I I say met, like I'd watched them before I hadn't met them properly. Um, yeah. They are the most lovely person, but Ziggy uh, is just like an amazing amazing act you must go and see them when things return to normal um, it's such a prism i think we talk, we touch on it a little bit it's quite hard to define what a classic uh, ziggy act is because and it's this talk it ties in nice story to him earlier because there are so many ideas there and sometimes you will see ziggy and it's very serious sometimes you have this really mad <laughs> cat wonderful cartoon energy they have so many um strings to their bow and aesthetics they are a real chameleon and um very funny they they work a lot with um the bitten peach which i don't know if we've mentioned the bitten peach before on the podcast yeah we haven't talked about the bitten peach yet the bitten peach is an amazing um queer pan-asian cabaret collective they are incredible if you you need to see them i mean artists like lily snatch dragon you have evelyn carnate you have shay shay ziggy obviously um Alyssa Anjani. there's so many um pippa Saar from bechdel she does stuff with a maiden gina which is a great name, Such a good uh, name. <laughs> long live maiden gina oh my god but they are excellent and so good so yeah, such a good night out go yeah follow them at the bit and, and please enjoy this chat with the wonderful ziggy moonlight i think because of this one we were like we're gonna we're gonna have quite like a firm start of like we'll do this and we'll just ask you these questions and then um then you came on and we just immediately started just talking about video games the drama it's because you guys are so chatty it's great 
yeah should we do a firmer start we can ask you an initial question and it will be like a structured interview that we've worked really hard on sounds good basically we we were going to ask everyone that came on to give like a a description of their drag king so when you're in drag to give a sort of physical description just for the kids at home that maybe haven't seen you in the flesh what you look like as your drag king what i look like depends on what show i do so i've got a variety of different sort of personas when i do ziggy moonlight um probably the most common ones are charles bronson who is in his normal habitat a hairy chested six-pack big sort of brute of a man with a singlet that has an open buttocks area region (laughs) um, that he likes to show to the audience and a really big handlebar moustache made from my own hair um, with a white face and like a sort of a, a black slit through his eye and a few teardrops yeah and so that's one and um there's another one which is like an, an amalgamation of all the old asian kung fu masters that you've seen like old kung fu flicks sort of old wispy hair fu manchu style beard going oh um with a little sort of kung fu outfit and wispy white hair and little hat and then um the one of the other characters that i did for your christmas show that you'll recognize is captain birdseye who oh. is as he says on the tin he's it's, it's just with a jacket, wispy white beard, hair, and a captain's hat, which is actually my partner's uh, uncle's old, old seaman hat. He will never know what it's used for now. That is fantastic. I mean, I hope it's okay for me to reveal this. I Before we sat down today, I specifically said to Katie that I wanted to talk <laughs> about the Captain Birds I act because it's one of my favorite things I've ever seen it's just so so brilliant um we wanted to ask how you get your inspiration for that stuff like wait do you just watch things and then you're such a chameleon I think is yeah like the fact when you're talking about Ziggy it's like the umbrella is Ziggy Moonlight but there are all of these different kind of streaks coming underneath of like he's a clown he's a sexy guy he's an old man like how do you kind of condense that into one person like where does it all kind of come from I had to think about this earlier, actually, because I come prepared. Um, <laughs> I, my premise, actually, when I came up with Ziggy Moonlight, is actually stays true to this day. So Ziggy Moonlight is sort of a play on Ziggy Stardust. Yeah. And if you don't know, you young kids don't know Ziggy Stardust. He's the alien creature that was created by David Bowie. And it came down to earth when humanity has five years to spread the tale of rock and roll and stuff like that. And Ziggy Moonlight was born the year that Donald Trump came to power. So I thought of him as a premise of he's come to show to the world what humanity and masculinity does. And it's all its horrible and beautiful forms in its last five years of existence that was the premise it's sort of gone strangely in different tangents um now i mean i don't really know what captain shows <laughs> <laughs> to humanity joy to queer people and yeah, joy just the yeah the very, bringing joy in. yeah yeah <laughs> um but i think i it's from different it's one maybe two different ideas 
or inklings that I have. So it's either when I just want to, if I really love a character, I just kind of want to be like them. You know, they're the characters I want to play if I'm an actor. So I did like a back way back when my first act, I did a Godfather act. Yes. About father figures. And I was just like, oh, I really want to just pretend and dress up to be the Godfather. When I was young, I used to stuff cotton bugs in my cheeks. <laughs> And I was I was crazy about Marlon Brando when I was seventeen, and I was like, mm, if I can try, I can try to be a bit like Marlon Brando, like that. I I love that you've gotten you've like gone for like old man Marlon Brando as well, rather than like young studly Marlon Brando. You're like, that's the one I want, like the paunchy one. Yeah, I know, right? Hey, yeah. <laughs> respect for that guy. Um, I tr- I tried to doing the streetcar name design. I'm like just doesn't quite work I as much as I want to be that I don't know or think I'll have the physique so I'm just gonna go with a fat old man keep my standards nice and low let's see on my list of like questions to ask you was like I don't again I don't want this to be in a creepy way but like I think some of your contouring and your body is like some of the best I've seen in like drag kings like you do like a bed bare chest all the time and like I watch you like draw on your abs and I'm just like I don't know what kind of sorcery that you're doing because it's like <laughs> In, you come out like an Adonis like into the room like how oh, tell, tell me that's a choice that's a choice it's um I some kings do it don't don't do it anymore they used to and they don't do it like as a means of just saying well I'm a king still despite not having this physique that looks like a man mm. and I respect that but I just mm, I just think it adds to that sense of illusion um, I think I, I learned it just from doing so for, I, I went to um, before I did my first show I went to Adam Moore's drag king workshop he was doing like a tour around the country so I did one of his in Sheffield he had like a collab with one of them um, with Andrew and Eve who did oh, their they were doing yeah. drag shows around Sheffield that was when I was in Leeds and um, and so I kind of learned a bit of contouring then uh, and then I just I didn't know how to do it at first, but then we just spent an evening, my partner and I just spent an evening sort of trying it out. And I was like, oh, it looks kind of right. Yeah. And then I proceed, I think we spent like two hours, me just like splayed <laughs> across the sofa and like the bed go like, mm, oh my God, I've actually got abs like that, um, which is hilarious. And I think just over time, the more you do it, it's like anything, the more you do it, the easier and quicker it gets. And you kind of know yeah. the right shape. I've seen um, you just like, doing it with like one hand like probably eating a sandwich at the same time just like yeah, yeah looking in a mirror my like... record is yeah just like five minutes and yeah. then it's sorted I don't have to say I'm not great at makeup I would say like there are some people who are amazing with getting their eyes right I still haven't figured it out I think my facial makeup makeup is still very simple very very simple I think we've we've both got cheats though like Katie you the contouring provided by your loose Willis wig is what are you talking about I wear like a full head to toe beat underneath that like I think that's that's probably a point of like with what you do as well with Siggy because it's if you have like a lot of kind of other props like facial hair jazzy hats like monocle I think like that conveys the character or what you're doing so much more that you don't need to people are a bit more forgiving maybe if you haven't like contoured your upper palette or, yeah, or, or agreed I think for me substance definitely substance over 
appearance yeah. for all of my shows. Like I, my my main aim with anything is to tell a story and to entertain, um, as opposed to look a really amazing part. How have you found moving into comparing? Because we both compare a lot, predominantly until quite recently, we were comparing. So it's quite interesting asking other people how they find it, like as kings. So just for the record, I did it about one time just before lockdown. <laughs> so it's your move into it and then shut down by a global it pandemic. A, it was so a very well. interesting experience because um, I mentioned it. Uh, I've got persona as, mm. you know, these three different main little characters. But I didn't compare as any one of them. I, I did it as my sexy kind of suave Ziggy, mm. which appears in photo shoots. Um, so he's normally got like a velvet jacket or some kind of glossy sort of black and white look with this very suited formal mm. but a bit suave kind of bad cop Ooh. style nice. with a little bit of peach fuzz yeah. um, stumbled out of bed like, yeah, yeah stumbled out of bed looking fabulous <laughs> yeah. um, and I found it hard to get a voice for that mm. the audience were lovely it was at the Cock Tavern in Kennington um, for Take Me Home projects and the Bitten Peach were there as well so I had lots of family around me and it was lovely yeah. um, it was a quite a hectic week though because it was also the BBC were recording me oh I was my on god a, yeah I was on a I, I'm due to appear on a documentary with the BBC for a thing it was meant to be released this month but it's being delayed um, so is it related come out. to drag at all or can you not it say is, it is it's related to um, it's about um, it's a the presenter is a, a British East Asian and she has three sort of episodes about her identity what it means to be a British East Asian in the UK so I've, I'll say that much and so I've got a little section it's one about you know she she tries drag with me so I had to have the BBC come and do all this random stuff on the same night I was comparing for the first time oh man it's really crazy <laughs> um but it all really went smoothly I think the one problem the only real issue I had was the fact that my mic stand I just couldn't adjust it so Jason Kwan who like six foot <laughs> Um, he sang and then I came on after and I didn't realize the mic stand was like that so I was like oh oh, oh let me just adjust it and then I just couldn't it dropped to the floor and then I had to try and pick it up again and every time I brought it back no matter what I just kept on having problems and everyone was just pissing themselves oh I'm like I've all the problems that I had imagined uh, doing this night I was not expecting the microphone <laughs> um, so but it was great fun you know those extra kind of like things you have to be like hyper aware of I guess of like when you perform by yourself you you've done your acts a million times you can just go on you've timed it you know which bits hit with the yeah. compare it's like you have to be able to do all that and support all the other performers and deal with stuff like a microphone that doesn't want to stay in the right Absolutely. place yeah and yeah. you're kind of a bit more I have to be on it throughout the night yeah you can't well. just like do yours and then go to the bar afterwards and have a couple of beers and relax and watch yeah. the rest of the show you have to be like exactly on edge vigilant yeah mm. it's holding very tiring it's quite a lot of emotional labor that's why I let Jodie do it more than I do it these days <laughs> <laughs> you do you guys do it very well though it's oh, really quite put together show thanks pal it's a job I mean I think it's quite it's quite easy hosting with Pexo in a way because people know what they're coming for now so they're really up for it I mean I I feel like I can walk out and just be like who the fuck are you and everyone's like yeah 
Do you you must have like a similar thing with a bit and peach, I guess, because like it's that kind of collective thing of people get to know the characters and the personalities that come. I think so. I think so. I I think generally, yeah, it's just kind of a good vibe, and everyone cheers everyone. So, and then I guess it's you gauge it more when you have people come up to you at the end and talk to you and be like, oh, you know, it's great, and it made me think about this. Yeah. 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 No, no, every time I do a show with them, it's always a lovely experience, you know. How long have you been performing at the Bit and Peach for now? They started it last January, I think, end of start of last year. So it's been going for like almost two years now. I can't believe they're so young. I mean, they're so established. It feels like something that should or has been around for a really, really long time. But Mm. because it's never existed before, really. There's never been a collective that's cabaret specific. Yeah. for East Asian or Asian performers so it's been really good but the founders are incredible like they've got amazing contacts I don't know if you know Evelyn Carnett yes um Um, yeah I saw her at um, a gig once and I was just like she yeah she's incredible she's responsible for she um did the lineup for some of the tents in Glastonbury Wow. yeah so I got to perform with Glastonbury because she just happened to message me and ask and I was like I'm going to Glastonbury this year oh well do you want to come and do a little thing with us I was like yeah oh, why man. not so we got to perform in the bread and roses tent how did that go hour. that was great fun there were lots of it was really hot though it was like the hottest you know it was last year yeah so my binding tape kept on like slipping off I was like oh my god just gotta keep going keep going keep going um, <laughs> no more <I> just, chest thrusts <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, I I think I think it was quite well received. It's hard to tell because it was a large audience. They all spread around, um, and they were all really hot and flustered. And they, they were trying their best to sort of. I think you could see lots of smiling faces. I don't think they've quite seen anything like what we did. Like, I mean, I was also not the craziest. Like, they were thrusting clowns and <laughs> thrusting clowns with socks and their penises and stuff like that. So. It was just one hell of a weird <laughs> in the middle of the seat wave. Um, so, yeah, but that was well, fun. Very Glasto vibe, I think. Yeah. yeah, once you get into like a sweaty tent, I feel like everyone is mildly dissociated anyway. That's kind of, I mean, the last time we did a festival was Latitude. It's obviously quite a different audience to Glasto because it's very like, you know, during the day, there are a lot of people that have brought their own chairs with them. That <laughs> I really wanted to go to Latitude. Yeah, I heard it's very good. I mean, it was very fun, but we were doing like midnight in the. It was late. I think we were like one a.m. It's like yeah, yeah. It was a great gig, but it's like you have to kind of, especially when you're at the festival and everything, because there must be a similar thing with Glasgow. You're like, I'm here. I've got a free ticket. I'm gonna party, and then it's like, okay, I've got to be ready to be like fully on my game at like one in the morning. Um, have you been to Elfest? Elfest? No. no. Have you? Yes, because um, Louis Fondini asked to um, do it. They were going to do a show there and they got asked a few kings to do their stuff. And um, and it's really quite cute. It's like in um, Landudno, which is like on the edge of Wales. <laughs> it's in this tiny little coastal farm. <laughs> And it's just, it's the tiniest, cutest thing. And you've got like, it's all, obviously it's all um, women. I don't think it's women and dogs. And um, the age range is probably from anywhere between 20 and 60. And it's probably more towards the older as well, because you've probably got a lot of regulars. It's been going for 10 years. Um, And when we performed it last year, 
I did my Bronson act um, and um, there were some, I think, I, I don't know, I'm slightly, I'm slightly scared of like some lesbians because there were some proper like hench ones in the front were like, you know, you kind of, you know, like just very much by on the butch side and like they know where they are and they know their place. Yeah. And uh, they, they were, they were getting like um, kind of angry. Well, oh. I never, I didn't know this until someone told me, one of the performers, they were like, why is there a man performing on the stage? What the f- Oh my God, really? Yeah, I know, yeah. Oh, wow. And I know, and the former who heard this um, was like, um, look closer. <laughs> you know? You were unclocked. You were like giving full, I mean, <laughs> Bronson realness to the point of like. Realness. I was angering lesbians. Oh my God. Last thing I'd want. So there's a bit, it's take, taken from the film Bronson, a lot of the stuff, and there's an early lip sync section where he does a heist. So he kind of goes into a jewelry, jewelers, and he kind of like scares everyone, and then he takes the, some jewelry and runs away. But in a polite, weird, charming way. Mm. It's like, Merry Christmas, and then runs off. Uh, I was like, don't call the police for five. No. 10 minutes and that kind of stuff um and um i did that so i mime it and i steal a briefcase from the audience but i did that to this front um, table of um of women and and i was like one of my lines like you don't say anything and and this is the first time this happened like she she reacted she's like you don't say anything and i was really scared oh my god i was like i'm gonna go back to the stage then i don't no one had ever like shouted back at me in such a way as then like i've I've performed it to so many people straight men gay men mixed crowds all kinds you know in you know garden parties and stuff like that and I've never had anyone just like shout at me the way that they do okay because like especially with like I think like drag and like queer gigs as well the I've never really had much less than the audience just adoring you and being so happy that you're there and so supportive so it's like really bizarre to like get heckled especially while you're doing a lip sync that's to a recorded track it's like it's like what you didn't do that like an improv thing that you were like riffing with the audience it's yeah, like they've missed the skill haven't they i mean the point is that it's not you it's really i feel like there's a lot of confusion going on it would be so weird if it was like a man performer wanted to do for their act i want to do a lip sync to bronson as a man like and i want to get on stage and do that i would be like okay and what's the subversion here of being a it was toxic man taking up space bizarre circumstances i mean uh, yeah i don't think any man who had that who ever did that would have balls so big that (laughs) just i don't think it even exists only to Tom Hardy that. himself could get away with oh, such Oh, I mean, a thing. that would be yeah. amazing at Elfestic. To- no one can complain about anything. I feel like that's such a classic blog post as well. Misgendered at Elfest. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> oh, I've got another story with um, about another lesbian festival, if you want. Oh, please. We actually have a, if you have anything that's on your mind or that you're annoyed about, we wanted to have a section called Drag It, where you can just get your rage out. There was an episode we had. Uh, at at um, Diva Music Festival, which mm. was, it's a magazine, isn't it? Yeah, we love Diva. And they had their first music festival uh, two years ago, I think, in December, in none other than the 
luxurious resort of Great Yarmouth. Um, there were caravans and they'd set up this massive tent thing and it was in like a holiday center. And um, uh, we were, it was with Boy Box, okay? So yeah. Adam all and Apple, there he is, brought the, her little, their little troop of drag kings to do the show, which ended up being really, really late because Kate, well, no, Kate, not Katie Tunstall, but one of the other people on earlier ran over, which then caused every other show to run over. And then Katie Tunstall was taking her sweet ass time. I bumped into Katie Tunstall in the dressing room as well. I was like, I'm not going to care of you because you've been, you're making us wait until 1 a.m. in the morning to perform. Um, anyway, so in the end, we did half the show and then uh, they said, got to cut it because it's too late and they got to do a disco after. So we're like, oh, okay, fine fine don't care uh so we've all a bit miffed so we like oh let's just dance with all these people and so we ended up doing a doing some boogieing with the crowd there were about i don't know 20 people end up being in like this circle of like just kings and lesbians dancing all together yeah and then suddenly there was like a dance off so some of us started like showing some moves and then some other people were like yeah look and then i came in and i Rip my, I did rip my Pitcherway pants off, and that oh got the mood going even more. <laughs> and then I went out the circle, and then Edie, Edipusy Rex came oh. in, and and there was, an, there was like a slightly, like quite big sort of um, tall, um, strong-looking lady who came came up, and they were dancing off. And then, and then at one point, the lady tried to pick up Edipusy. Oh God! And then Edie just sort of fell over and was sort of trying to. There was a point, a moment of just like how they were just trying to defend themselves with their like crotch which was a <laughs> shining disco light yeah i've seen <laughs> and i disco think crotch. the she took it as a um the lady took it as an invitation to sort of drag edie across the room oh my god <laughs> yeah <laughs> by which point the the music just turned off it was just like um not because we killed the vibe but because <laughs> because it was 2 a.m <laughs> but at, it was just at that exact moment that it just felt like we as kings had just destroyed the atmosphere of the mood <laughs> and one one of us was just being hauled across the room by a very scary strong lesbian um apple came to the rescue was like no no get away um and oh, so then and that, and that was the end so we went home and uh lived our lives <laughs> oh my god but yeah the thing it's kind of both of it's a thing of boundaries as well it's like do you find often because you do like sexually kind of provocative or like acts where you get naked or that kind of thing do you find that audience members sometimes will kind of cross boundaries that maybe you wouldn't want them to cross i've been lucky enough to never have anything like i think i've only had like a like a gentle stroke okay which yeah. is more just been like a stroke well like done a, yeah kind of thing pat on the back yeah. yeah um i almost had um um a man throw uh some socks not dirty socks but like a just a ball of socks just like some clean socks. i don't know where they came from yeah, where is this? and he th he, he almost stuffed them in my my oh bronson cigarette he almost he was like just sort of a lu lunging and stuffing it in but just in the moment he was about to stuff it in carrot carrot the drag queen yep, came yep. and sort of did one of those weird dives you know where you save a bullet and 
grabbed the pair of socks and just sort of saved me from this doom. Taking a bullet for you. One thing we'd like to do without fail is also give you space to plug anything that you're working on or your social medias or if people have, if you have a Patreon or anything like that, is there anything you want to promote or just sort of promote general goodwill in the universe? And So BBC documentary, which is coming out, I will post about it on my social medias. What are your handles? Uh, it's Siggy Moonlight, of course. S-I-G-I Moonlight. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, as of yesterday, uh, a collaboration I did with a, an artist, um, Caroline Wong, has been chosen in the Society of Women Artists 159th Annual Exhibition has been chosen. So you can view it online. It's if you go to painting. Society of Women Artists, I've been chosen alongside um, Victoria Sins. I feel really oh. inadequate. Um, <laughs> Swanky. Do you have anywhere people can like donate to you? Have you done any of that thing? I, I have a PayPal, paypal.me slash Ziggy Moonlight. I think that's the one. If not, there'll be another Ziggy Moonlight. He'll Someone be else very, is going to have a great time. Very, very happy. <gasps> cool. Oh, it's um, lovely talking to you guys. Lovely talking to you too. Take care. Bye. Bye. Wow, it's always great to hear from Ziggy Moonlight. And here's someone else I think you're going to be really pleased to hear from. It's Mr. Golden Balls and another edition of Queer Histories. stumble back on stage to join my fellow competitors, still damp from my impromptu sponge bath. I'm smelling faintly of cream, the unmistakable whiffs of lactose swiftly turning to a sour curdle under the bright lights of the main stage. Squinting through the remains of meringue crumbs encrusted in my eyelashes, I can barely make out the crowd of 300 or so crammed into the venue. Mr Golden Balls has been selected to lip-sync for the crown alongside Louis Raclette, the ageless sage, Witty and wise as he is adorable, Eclipse, the Belgian superstar, swooping in with effortless class from his chateau in the European capital, and, last but not least, the golden boy of the Parisian kingdom, first in line to the Lavidange throne, Judas Lavidange. My three rivals launch into their rehearsed renditions of Bohemian Rhapsody. I take a pause to catch my breath mid-flail, and am momentarily stunned by Judas' performance. As the marathon track reaches a point of climax, He breaks his Mercurian stance. Turning to the wings, he grabs a lighter and ignites the sparkler taped discreetly along the upper ridge of his guitar, twirling his shoulder-length black mane. Thrusting forward his hips, clad in the tightest of tight white jeans, he expertly fingers the chords of his flaming instrument. A showstopper. The results of the clapometer leave no room for doubt. Judas is declared le roi des drag kings, the French king of kings, crowned with a plastic gold, party prop. He poses centre stage, enthroned at the heart of his fawning drag court. The campy aggression of the lip-sync battle and the crotch-gripping bravado of the coronation abruptly make way for an unexpectedly solemn speech from our new monarch. Thankfully, Judas would publish a written record of his speech over social media the following day. I'm of course so happy and touched by last night's event, but that doesn't take away from the fact that the king's scene remains underrepresented. Our events receive far less publicity. Drag King artists are, on the whole, unpaid. We're women, trans guys and non-binary people, undefinable creatures who get on stage to unpack the heteropatriarchy which oppresses us on a daily basis. As kings, we don't have a RuPaul, but we do have a history deeply rooted in lesbian culture. 
We've got to talk about this history. We mustn't forget it. Judah began kinging about three and a half years ago following his encounter with Jésus, the only drag king in a lineup of queens at the Yono, a gay bar located at the time in Bastille. For Judah, his drag king practice is inextricably bound up with his lesbian identity. His first exposure to drag kinging came from the L word. The charismatic character of trans mass king Ivan Akok left a mark on Judah, although he wasn't aware of the existence of the drag king scene at the time. His first experience of a live drag king performance came years later and immediately captivated him. Like any vraie lesbienne, true lesbian, he told me, the carnal reality of an AFAB person in a suit, playing a guitar just a few feet away, was irresistible. With a sincerity and a sensitivity that couldn't be further removed from his onstage king persona, inspired by the worst of the men he'd grown up with as a young musician on the rock and metal scenes of Paris, Judas' coronation speech addressed head-on a question that continues to preoccupy drag king scholars and practitioners alike, that of the historical invisibility of the drag king and his relationship to largely unspoken lesbian histories. If the drag queen has long constituted a prominent, albeit transgressive, figure in popular culture and a global, albeit stigmatised, symbol of gay identity, the same cannot be said of the drag king. In the words of Halberstam, an unexpected latecomer to the scene of drag and gender bending. Emerging as a category of identification, a performance genre and a political technology in the late 80s, the drag king remains today a relatively obscure, often illegible figure, even within the queer milieu. When he is recognised, he is often defined as the poor relative, a derivative shadow of what Sam Boursier terms the flamboyant and hegemonic paradigm of the drag queen. Although forms of gender deviance are associated with non-normative sexual identities and practices amongst both AMAB and AFAB subjects, the gender sexuality nexus operates differently across the binary. Cross-dressing and the transgressive performance of gender roles have had vastly different manifestations amongst AFAB subjects transculturally and transhistorically, with profound implications for queer AFAB women. Caught at the intersection of multiple axes of sexually motivated marginalisation, to put it simply, lesbian is not merely the mirror image of cis male gay culture. It is the butch, not the drag king, who has historically embodied lesbian stigma in the Anglo-American world. And in the context of Anglophone performance traditions, the butch has been excluded from the theatrical technologies of camp and drag. Her supposed seriousness and ugliness deemed antithetical to the playfulness and glamour of these counter-cultural institutions. As Judah's story suggests, the intuitive relationship that is often assumed between drag king practice and lesbian cultures is far from self-evident. Between the lines of his speech emerge echoing histories of invisibility and exclusion, whose interrelatedness is as undeniable as it is complex. One December evening, a few months after Judah's victory at the drag king at competition, I had a conversation with his partner Caroline, which shed light on their own relationship with the complex interrelatedness of the drag king and lesbian histories. I asked Caroline if she did any kinging herself. The question was met with a simultaneous scoff from the couple. Caroline wasn't an aspiring or novice king. She was a drag king encyclopedia. In fact, she'd recently finished a project which she'd been working on for some months now, a drag king edition of a Dyke Zine series, which represented years of lesbian knowledge, painstakingly accumulated since her teens. The impulse behind the project was the very real need to render lesbian history accessible, namely by translating academic texts 
the vast majority of which are written in English, but also by clarifying and condensing the key concepts and insights buried within these works for a wider audience. Caroline's Drag King Sign included a section on male impersonation, one of the very few gender-bending theatrical traditions originating amongst female-bodied performers, a rarity in a cultural landscape conditioned by widespread taboos around women's place on stage, in public life more broadly, and the associated political anxieties pertaining to F to M gender transgression. But the male impersonator is not the focus of Caroline's drag king history. The drag king culture that spread throughout the 90s and the early 2000s, from the epicenters of New York, LA and London, emerged, she highlighted, out of a specific historical context and a specific sociocultural milieu, the butch lesbian scene. In this genealogy, the drag king is the direct descendant of the gender transgression of butchers and transmass people socialised within butch subcultures, where the cultivation of a plurality of masculinities conceived independently from the cis male body represent not a theatrical or artistic practice, but a project integral to selfhood, the construction of community, and as a tool for survival. This trajectory can be read through the work of Jack Halberstam and his groundbreaking theorisation of female masculinities, a foundational slab of drag king thought and performance practice. The butch drag king genealogy that Caro sketched out along our bumpy ride through the bleak December streets of Paris spoke also to the stony reception that drag kings have received amongst certain audiences, be they gay, straight or indeed lesbian. With some exasperation, she evoked the all-too-familiar charge levelled at drag king artists that their performances are not spectacular enough and attributed this response to dominant gender ideology which posits the masculine as the universal inimitable and neutral subject, and renders the performance of certain masculinities by AFAB persons at once incomprehensible and deeply troubling. But there's another piece to this picture, essential if we are to account for the enduring nature of drag king illegibility in LGBT circles and beyond, lesbian feminism. A dominant ideology amongst white lesbian communities of North America in the 1970s, lesbian feminist thought, emerging out of the cracks in the women's liberation and gay rights movements, articulated a revolutionary, politicised lesbian identity and attempted to forge new possibilities for lesbian lives under heteropatriarchy. Elements of this thought, however, became associated with some of the darkest currents of feminist politics which haunt feminism to this day. The eraser of pop perspectives and the privileging of white middle-class concerns the exclusion of trans people and the policing of gender expressions and identifications, notably in the rejection of butch femme identities, taxed with reproducing heterosexual norms. In lesbian spaces, marked by a lesbian cultural or essentialist feminist thought that both refracts and compounds the heteronormative matrix, drag and the drag king have represented a taboo practice. Judah and Caro's passion for the drag king is rooted in a deep conviction, a belief in the importance of sharing dyke histories and honouring the butchers who made the drag king season of today possible. This work requires the careful unpicking of interwoven narratives and perplexing instances of paradoxical convergence in hegemonic and counter-hegemonic discourses. It also requires the acknowledgement of the foundational failures of feminism and the reality of oppression amongst minoritarian subjects. The closing words of Judas' coronation speech at the Drag Kingathon competition directly address the responsibility of drag king publics and practitioners in this regard. Go see drag shows in small venues, in grassroots activist spaces, in dive bar basements, because that's where I come from. 
Don't shy away from participating in drag king workshops and organisers be inclusive. We need pop kings. Drag king history is theirs too. More than anything, it's their history. Support political forms of drag, those forms which have resisted hypermediatization and hyper-commodification, and remain free. Reclaiming the darkness of the drag king is a delicate and, at times, deeply uncomfortable task. It is a labour of love. The people I've had the privilege of working with over the course of five years in Paris, people like Judas and Caroline, like Jésus, like Chamille, like Victor, far too many people to name here, give me confidence that this labour of love, underpinned by centuries of dyke drama and lesbian genius, informed by trans-feminist and decolonial insight, and defined by a commitment to intersectional feminist practice, is within our reach and is worth reaching for. Just before we head off for a little season break, I want to say a special thank you to Gemma for the extremely generous Patreon donation. It's definitely going towards creating more podcasts like this and not me collecting all of Bruce's back catalogue on Blu-ray. So thank you so much to Gemma and all of our Patreons. You're amazing. And I think this next section is going to be dedicated to all of you. Um, I hope it's not too inappropriate but it's definitely going to be sexy because it's time for one last sexy story time. Well, hello there. I'm Izzy Aman, and this is your favorite sexy story time. Thanks, Izzy. I'm Isabel, and this episode features work by a brilliant novelist called Rupert Thompson. This book is called Never Anyone But You, and it conjures the lives of artists Claude Cahan and their partner Marcel Moore, from being raised as little girls in provincial France to making art in Paris during the growth of surrealism to their older age together on Jersey, secretly fighting the German occupation. If you don't know Claude Cahan's work, especially their photographic self-portraits, then get to know, they're just fascinating. And the novel is a beautiful tribute to a long and loving real queer relationship. Listeners to previous episodes might notice that, like President Harding's amorous letters, this story is also set in 1912. Was it a particularly sexy year? I'll leave that to you to judge. 1912 A spring afternoon in Nantes, the weather unseasonably hot. Claude and I sat in the Café de l'Europe, three doors down from where she lived. We had ordered a second iced coffee. Or was it a third? As always, we were putting off the moment when we would have to say goodbye. Outside, the square was bleached white with sunlight, but the interior of the café was dark and cool. According to the newspapers, the attempts by Great Britain and Germany to reach an agreement about naval spending had foundered once again. The arms race was out of control. The British will never back down. Claude pushed a lock of hair out of her eyes. My father thinks there will be war. All the light from beyond the window seemed to have collected on Claude's face. Her skin had its usual flawless pallor, and I could see the gold crazing in her irises. She looked at me and took a breath. She bit her bottom lip. What is it? I asked. I just realized something. I'm not sure how to say it, though. I smiled. That can't possibly be true. You always know how to say things. It's going to sound strange. Tell me. 
I don't feel that I exist unless you look at me. She seemed astonished then, as if what she had just said was some kind of revelation, one of those truths you only become fully aware of when you find the words for it. When you're not looking, it's almost as if I disappear. I wondered if I could say what was in my mind to say. I decided that I could. In that case, I'll never take my eyes off you. Her face held quite still. A single, tiny movement, and the moment could evaporate. Was that a promise? Yes. She lowered her eyes and smiled. Then she stood up. There's a place I want to show you. We left the café and walked to the offices of her father's newspaper, Le Faire de la Loire. On the first floor, we passed through a set of double doors. The library, she said. The air had a sweet, pungent smell. The glue used in the binding of books must have softened in the heat. In the distance, I heard the muffled tapping of a typewriter. I come here to read, Claude told me, late at night when all the editors have gone home. I followed her down the aisles between the stacks. We were surrounded by scientific periodicals and monographs, all highly specialized, their pages musty, foxed. Claude read the titles out loud, one after the other, the language so obscure and technical that it sounded like an incantation or a spell, and then she knocked into me, almost clumsily, as if she had lost her footing. It seemed involuntary, an accident but suddenly her mouth was close to mine and my arms were round her waist, her small, urgent body pressing against me, her lips tasting of coffee. I have longed for you, she murmured, night after night. My longing poisoned me. It was like tetanus or septicemia. It got into my blood and made me ill. I was like someone who was dying, slowly dying. She reached out and touched the window, her forefinger leaving a faint print on the glass. I never realized that something that wasn't there could kill me. I didn't know that could happen. I was dying too, I said. Were you? Really? I thought you had no interest in me. I thought I was the only one who felt something. No interest in you? I laughed softly. I told her what I remembered of our meeting three years before. The dim light in the room, the rain, the smear of jam. I had jam on my face? she said. Yes, just here. I touched the place. I felt the same thing you were feeling. Didn't you notice? I stood back and looked at her. You didn't see me blushing? I thought I was making you uncomfortable because I was younger. My face burned as before. It wasn't that. What was it then? Before I could answer, she pressed her lips against my lips. I felt her tongue long, whirling moments. Our bodies seemed to want to merge, incorporate each other. The door to the library opened. I tensed, my mouth still close to hers. Footsteps approached. Claude's father appeared at the end of the aisle. He looked startled. I'm showing Suzanne the library, Claude told him. I thought someone had broken in, he said. An intruder. She smiled. No, father. It's just us. You have been listening to the Drag King cast from Pex Drag Kings. 
If you enjoyed it, then please do donate to Pex's Patreon. Um, if you can't afford that, then definitely subscribe and give us a five-star rating on iTunes because it really does help us out. You can follow us on Instagram at PexDragKings, on Twitter at PexDrag, and on Facebook at Pex.TheDragKings. The Drag King cast is presented by Jodie Mitchell, a.k.a. Dron Travolver, and Katie Bormer, a.k.a. Luce Willis. And today you heard from Helena Felstrom, a.k.a. Mr. Golden Balls, and Isabel Adamarco Young, a.k.a. Izzy a Man. Drag King Cast is produced by Katie Bulmer, Jodie Mitchell, and Pex's executive producers Ellen Spence and Daisy Hale, and has music from Anya Pearson of Dream Nails, artwork by Emma Hayden, and photography by Ra Petherbridge. Drag King Cast is recorded live from our houses because the whole COVID malarkey, yeah, not fun. Anyway, long live the king. Thank you.